Kunis T. How are ye? Welcome to the Candlelit Tales podcast. This week, and for the next three weeks, we're doing something a bit different. In collaboration with our friends in the Embers Collective, you're going to be hearing two stories every week. You see, one of the things that's always fascinated us about Irish myths is the way that you can see parallels in other stories from around the world. We had a listener called Maya who noticed the same thing and wrote into us in July, telling us about the parallels she saw to Greek myths and North myths and her own local stories. Hope you're still listening, Maya. So what you're going to hear in this series is a story from the Embers Collective from somewhere around the world, and then after that a story from Irish myth chosen by one of our storytellers. You're also going to hear from more of our Candlelit Tales storytellers than usual. Oisín Ryan and Rue O'Shea are stepping up to the microphone as storytellers in this series. We're going to talk about these stories all at once in a post-show special at the end of the month. Keep an eye on our social media for details. But for now, settle in and Sam Rixey is going to tell us a wonderful story from ancient Greece. The story of Iris and Hypnos. This story is from Greece, not the hit musical with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, no, ancient Greece. And it begins with Hera, queen of Olympus, who needed a dream. Not for herself, but to pass a message on to someone else, Alicon. Alicon's husband, Saix, was dead. He'd been sailing home when Poseidon, the god of the oceans, had become angry and in his rage whipped the waters into a violent storm that tore through the night. Sakes watched in horror as a wave rushed towards the ship, forming into a fist that smashed through the mast, splintering the wood before stretching into foam-flecked fingers that wrapped themselves around the boat, dragging it down, down, down into the black waters. And in that moment, everything that Sakes was, was not. Unaware, of her loved one's fate, Alicon watched for his ship on the horizon every day, the knot in her stomach growing tighter and tighter. So consumed was Alicon with thoughts of sakes that she no longer cared for herself. She didn't eat nor sleep, and a mind without rest is a troubled mind. She would wander the empty house, staring at the empty bed, unable to fall asleep as her body searched for the familiar warmth that was no longer there. And every night she would pray, mumbling desperate pleas to Hera for Sakes's safe return, to lay with him, wrapped in each other. She would pray and pray and pray. Hera could see the love in Alicon's words, and it broke her heart knowing that Sakes would never return. She couldn't bring him back. But she could bring peace to a mind that looked for what was no longer there. She could give Alicon the gift of restful sleep. And when she was held in its gentle embrace, Hera would send her a message of her husband's passing in a dream. And then having convinced Poseidon to release the body of Sakes, Alicon could find him, restful and at peace on the beach. For once we know something is truly at an end, we can begin again. She would free Alicon from the unknown and give her that gift of restful sleep. And for that, she would need the help of Hypnos, the god of sleep. 
Hypnos lived in a cave in the land of Erebus, a place that was neither here nor there, a land of perpetual twilight, where no light from the sun or the moon shone, where no sound was heard. Through the cave ran the river Leith, and all who drank from its silent waters would forget all that they were till they reached oblivion. Hypnos was as old as time. He had been present when all things that are, were or will be came into being. He was a child of darkness, the brother of death. And as the god of sleep, he owned half of human life, able to make or break a mind at will. He had three children. Morpheus, Phantos and Phobita, the Honori, the shape-shifting gods that appeared in dreams or nightmares. But unlike his brother, Hypnos was kinder and more gentle. He only wanted balance in the world. It was getting to Hypnos. That was difficult. To get to the realms of sleep, you had to be at peace with yourself in darkness find yourself stuck there forever. Hera needed someone to go for her because she wasn't going to fucking do it. Besides, she needed to contend with Poseidon, which was by no means an easier task. Yeah, right. And so Hera summoned Iris, her messenger and friend whose cloak of colour would arc through the sky as she passed between heaven and earth. She instructed Iris to go to Erebus, to the cave of Hypnos, and plead with him on her behalf to bestow his kindness upon Alakon and send one of his sons to inform her of Sakes's death. Iris shuddered. She had never been to the cave of sleep, to the mysterious realm of darkness and shadow where no light shone and no sound was heard, and Hera, sensing her fear, smiled and held Iris in an embrace and said... We only fear darkness when we are lost within it. She then kissed her gently on the lips and sunlight began to dance from Hera's fingertips and mouth and Iris felt warmth flood through her as the strands of light wound their way around her body, threading up her spine, her chest, her legs and arms, through her lips, her eyes and hair till gently entwining around her heart. Hera stepped back and held her friend. Right now, you are you. And you are here. And you will always be you. Even when you're there. Iris nodded, slowly. She didn't really know what Hera meant. Hera had been saying things like this ever since she got back from her retreat. But Iris found it best just to nod along and smile. She was a good friend. Throwing her cloak of colour about her shoulders, she made her way down through the sky. Her cloak trailed its colourful arc through the blue, a rainbow that followed her down, down, down into the mysterious depths of darkness. Where she saw a cave. Outside the mouth of it stood a solitary elm tree lit by a mysterious light that made it glow in the darkness. As far as the eye could see, at the mouth of the cave were poppies, countless poppies. There was no breeze, 
but they swayed from side to side. And when she stepped amongst them, they all turned to face her. She shuddered, but she was brave and tied the end of her rainbow to one of the branches of the elm so that she could quickly trace her path back to the upper world when the time came. Already she could feel something within her, pulling her. With a breath, she stepped into the cave and began to tread her way through the darkness and silence. Her footsteps made no sound. Up was just as dark as down and there was nothing from left to right. The entrance was gone. But had she walked that far? How long? Was she still moving or was she still? She couldn't see. Was she still moving or was she still? What if she tripped and fell into the darkness? She felt nothing beneath her feet. And was she falling? Was she falling now? Just, just breathe, breathe. Where was her breath? She couldn't hear her breath, but she, she had to be breathing because she was thinking, she thought. Think it out loud, then you know that you're there. But what do I say? Anything. She called out into the darkness, but her shout was drowned out by a bellowing silence that made her head ring. Was she still moving? Or was she falling? How do you know if you're falling? Well, when you stop. No, 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 no. Hold on to something. She reached out her hand. Nothing. Where are your hands? Where were her hands? She couldn't see. Where am I? Where's anything? Was that her thought? Who else could it be? It didn't sound like her. What do your thoughts sound like? I've never heard them. You don't know? No. The silence was roaring, deafening her. I can't... I can't hear you. It's too quiet. I can't hear who? You. You mean me. Who else? There is no one else. There's you. You mean me. You're here. I'm here. I'm here, you're here, no, no, you are you, and you're here, that's right, but it's me, I'm you, it's me, I'm you, I'm you, and you're me, I am me, and I am here, I am me, and I am here, I am me, and I am here. And she repeated that mantra over and over again. And as she did so, she dug her nails into the palm of her hand, rejoicing at the pinch that shot through her skin and cut through the stillness in which she found herself falling into. And she was falling. She was definitely falling. Something was coming towards her in the darkness, rushing towards her, getting closer and closer. But she was not afraid. She was going towards something, and as she fell, things began to form all around her, shapes gone as soon as they appeared. But she was not afraid. She laughed. And as she laughed, Hera's light that was in her body began to shine. I am here, and I am me. I am here, and I am me. And as the end came faster and faster towards her, she beamed as she stretched out her fingers and saw that they were glowing, glowing. The end came faster and faster, and she was not afraid. She was not afraid. She reached the end, and all of that nothing vanished. To reveal herself, standing in a cave. She looked around and saw the entrance right behind her. 
There was the tree and the poppies. There was the rainbow tied to the branch. She stepped further into the cave, her light shining brighter and brighter as she took in the small space. The wall and ceilings were made from smooth black stone. A river ran right through the middle, and on the other side stood a throne made of ebony. Its back reached right up to the ceiling, and around, like a plumage, was stuck black feathers. Behind it danced thick black shadows that swirled and shimmered in the still air. In the throne sat a being. Around its head was a crown of poppies. Its face was like that of an old man's, but one who had lived a carefree life and so had no wrinkles on it. An old man baby face. It beamed like a child, and although its eyes were closed, Iris felt that it was looking straight at her. This, she thought, must be Hypnos. You are correct. Iris heard a voice gently echoing around the cave. She looked into the old man baby's face and realized that it was this spoke to her without moving its lips still taken aback iris pointed at the entrance it's just there the entrance i thought i thought i'd come so much further As a demigod herself, she knew better than to question things that seemed impossible. She relayed Hera's message, and once she had finished, Hypnos reached back and pulled a handful of the shadow behind him. Holding it in his palm, it flashed a white light and revealed Alicon, standing on the cliff edge and staring out to sea. Her eyes were red from crying, and her face pale from lack of sleep. She looked desperate. Her lips moving but making no sound. Hypnos closed his hand, and the image, along with the shadow, vanished into whispering vapors. saying stuff like that, she said. Did you go on the same retreat as her? Morpheus, called Hypnos. Out from the shadows stepped a small winged creature. Its skin was leathery grey, but Iris stepped back when she saw that what stood before her had no face. Just a blank square of skin that stared back at her, blankly. 
Hypnos laughed as all of a sudden the figure transformed into Iris. My son is playing games with you. He is a shapeshifter and can transform into any person who breath upon this world. And with that, Morpheus had transformed and there stood Hera. And then Zeus, and then one of Iris's exes, Dick, she managed to say before Morpheus changed again, and there, before her, was Sex. He stepped over the river and stood beside Iris. Well, what are you waiting for? said Hypnos. And Iris smiled her thanks and turned to leave. But as she stood, at the cave entrance, amongst the poppies, she called back to the ancient god. By the way, I reckon more people would visit you if they didn't lose their fucking minds in your doorway. Just something to think about. She then untied the rainbow, and throwing the cloak of colour about her shoulders, retraced her path back up, up, up through the dark to the sky, Morpheus beating his wings alongside her. And after she left, Hypnos opened one sleepy eye that gleamed beneath heavy lids. He set himself back in his chair. Plucking a handful of shadow from behind him, he held it, cupped in his hands. Alicon appeared, and he saw her pained face once more, staring at the ceiling as she lay in her bed. Hypnos brought the shadow close to his lips and began gently whispering into it. And as he did so, he watched as Alicon suddenly drifted into a deep sleep. And satisfied, he set the shadow down where it immediately vanished. And Hypnos then pulled the impenetrable darkness back across the cave and set himself back down in the chair where he did a little fart and went to sleep. Alicon was woken from her sleep by the sound of someone entering her room. She opened her eyes, and there stood, at the edge of her bed, was Sakes. She gasped as he made his way over to her, the corner of his mouth curling into a smile. He sat on the bed next to her and held her hand, and Alicum brought it tightly to her chest as he ran his fingers through her hair and down her cheek with that softness he was blessed with. They then lay there, wrapped in each other's arms, and neither of them said anything. Why ruin it? And Alicorn realised that she was dreaming, as we all eventually do. But she was calm, and she looked at him and asked if he was dead. And he nodded and opened her mind to see the beach that lay just below the cliffs where she stood each day. And she knew that this was where she must go. But for now, she was happy to lay in her lover's arms. For in that moment, everything that Sakes was, was there. And in the morning, Alicorn rose from her bed and left her house. She made her way down to the shore by the cliffs, where she found Sakes lying there 
on the beach as she knew she would. And she ran over to him and began to weep. And she beat her chest and she cursed the world and screamed at the sky. But then she washed his body and kissed his eyes and collected the wood and built his pyre and made the fire watching his body disappear with the smoke into the sky. And she knew that a part of her would always be broken because this was the end. But when we know that something is at an end, we can begin again. away now I can no longer tell you This morning's tempest I have to cross I must be guided without a stumble into the arms I love the most And when he came to His true love's dwelling He knelt down gently Upon a stone and through her window He's whispered lowly Is my true love within at home? Wake up, wake up, love It is thine own true love Wake up, wake up, love, and let me in, for I am tired, love, and oh so weary, and more than need, drenched to the skin. She's raised her offer, her down soft pillow. She's raised her up and she's let him in. And they were locked in each other's arms. Until that long night was past and gone And when that long night was past and over And when the small clouds begin to grow He's taken her And he saddled and mounted And away did go 
passed away now I can no longer tarry This morning's tempest I have to cross I must be guided Without a stumble Into the arms I love the most Well, when Aaron heard this story, the main thing that jumped out at him was the idea of a love story where two people love each other dearly but can't be together and only have a day to fall in love. Now, there are plenty of tragic love stories in Irish myth. But there's one in particular where that long day of falling in love with someone new is particularly important. And that is the story of Boan and the Dagda. So, Aaron, tell us a story. Back before the two-a-day went under a hill, but before they had fought that great famous battle against the Formorians and between the first and second battle of Moitura, there was peace for a while. All over a land filled with different factions and tribes, forms and formulations of peoples who had gathered and congregated from different places. Boan was the wife of the king, Nuada of the Silver Arm, as was his name. He had lost his arm in a great battle against the Fearbolg. And in that severing of his limb, he had lost his kingship until the day the great healer, the Inkect, had made from a strand of silver hair he'd plucked from his head into a brilliant silver arm. Sinew to sinew, bone to bone, and skin to skin, he had wrapped that silver in and attached it, staying strong and firm. Nuada was still the Tuatidanan's rightful ruler and king, entrusted with all of the setting up of this great island. But Boan was ignored in all of this. Boan, his wife, Boan, the one who had been with him for so long and through so much coming from the northern islands of Mirius, Morius, Phandias and Phileas, where she herself had learned the magic ways of the Tuatidanan, the shape shifting, the ways of forming magic out of thin air. And she now seemed to be forgotten by her husband. That silver arm that was so strong and made him able to rule again, for no ruler could have a blemish upon him and certainly not a missing arm. But now that he was restored, he was restored in strength, but not by her side. She felt cold to his touch. She was ignored by his longing and lust-filled eyes that strayed towards other women. She felt cold inside that silver arm had 
left a silver deposit in her heart and her husband. And so she wished to find the wisdom of the other world, the wisdom of the well of knowledge. But no one was allowed the well of knowledge not to look into this well. It was forbidden and it was her husband's duty to protect this. And so he made sure it was guarded well and everyone knew would bring shame upon themselves and their cohort to look into the well of wisdom for no one of this land could hold on to that much knowledge within their mind. You'd be driven insane, they say. The wisdom of this world and the next should stay in the other world. Well enough left alone, they say. But Boan earned and yearned for something more. Maybe her wanting for this knowledge was not really to do with the wisdom of the other world, but more wanting some form of excitement. Her excitement came when she watched the seasons play in between one and another, the melding and mixing of the trees and forming into the leaves that fell to the ground to die, became frosted and cold to be reborn and born again anew and green and bright and strong under the sunlight of the summer. And in the times that her husband stayed in council for their war and delegating with whom to govern peace over and which way he decreed he should govern peace between the tribes that were fighting, she felt invisible and so stitched her cloak out of a silver strand of her own hair into an invisible cloak, a grey hair she was sure she didn't have the year before. But maybe, because of the stress of being ignored, it had grown. Well, whichever way it was, she went about walking, invisible to all. For her cloak kept her not only from view of her husband, who didn't seem to see her anyway, but everyone who would be watching her feet fall on the ground. All around Tara, where her king and husband sat on a high throne ruling above Ireland. And she would wander around those hills, seeing the valleys, and listening to the music that filled the land with the seasons changing. Each season brought its own music, she thought. This springtime song was so filled with lightness, the ease of which birds sang along with tune as they fluttered and flicked across the sky, filling the sky with their beating wings and tweeting songs as below them buds bloomed and daffodils grew with long necks and yellow heads. All of the flowers seemed to have their own song too and life came back through the soil that was still so cold and wind that cut through you but the song was light and breezy and as it entered into summer that music gained more and rang rings around itself as it reverberated through the land itself that grew and grew and grew in strength and force something coming to build up and make you want to belong to the green filled lands of strong oaks and trees that spread out all across the land as far as the eye could see. And then the autumnal song would tumble in, a sound of effervescent, a fizzing, a fickle falling of leaves as the green turned yellow and brown and softly began to fall. And as the wilting of those flowers 
fell to the ground, a coldness came to wrap yourself up in, but again you could hear the music that kept its motion going through this season, and though it was the sound of dying things and death going into the land, there was a certain sense of knowing that good things came to those who waited, and who were willing to wait to see life come again. And then the silence would come. And the sound of winter would creep its way with a bitter patter and a certain reminiscent rumble that you would know as it came along, always after the time when things lay down and suddenly all of those lying were dying and dead. The leaves were gone and the trees were bare. And the sharp call of the crow would be heard from the tree. Eerie, silent and still, but not so silent in the turning. Always a music, always a glimmer of sound, just waiting for those notes to change, to become lighter and let spring take over once again. And it was in this time that Boan walked waiting and watching as little buds appeared, blossoms in trees, and the smallest of flowers peeking their way through just about. And Boan's footfall would find herself away from Tara and into the valleys, close to the Well of Wisdom, but far enough away to keep it at bay. And she was following this sound, this music, the lightness, the brightness, this thing in the air the birds were singing along with, and by a river edge, where the trees were beginning to bud and grow, she saw a man playing his beautiful harp there. And from the harp, things seemed to grow around it. There was an echoing. There was a sense of semblance with this harp and the earth and the birds. The buzzing of the bees were in time and in harmony with every string that he commanded. His hands flying up and down, making spring sounds all around him. And it was that moment that she recognized the Dagda, the great good god of the Tuadedanan. And though she was wearing her invisibility cloak, he looked up and he stared right at her. Through the cloak that she was fully sure she was still wearing, but he saw her and he smiled at her. And she felt as if she was pretty naked. But she walked towards him and then let fall the invisibility cloak to her feet as he smiled and seemed to say with his eyes, Oh, yeah. And she walked across the river as he kept playing the sound and song of spring and he glanced at her and held out his hand and when she fell into his hands she knew she was falling into the arms of a lover as they fell down onto the ground and rolled around for a good while, a good while at least. And the sun in the sky seemed to reach its highest point. And just as it began to move its way west, she gasped and didn't want this moment to end. She told the Dagda she could spend just one day with him. Because at the end of this day, she would have to return to the king, Nuada, her husband. She could not bring 
such turmoil to the land by betraying him and letting it be known by spending an entire night out with some unknown man. And the dog there said, Right, I hear you. Just uh, give me a second there now. And with a flick of his wrist, he unstrung a string from his harp, flicked it to the sky up high, and then it seemed to lasso the sun in place. And he said, that sun will stay there for a year and a day. And so it was that way that Bowen spent an entire full year following the Dagda playing his songs of spring and summer and autumn and back into winter all with the one day there still. The sun in the sky not setting low and this is how they spent their time together in loving embrace with one another. And she could not have been said to have spent an entire day and night away from Tara for it was all the one day. Really. And so in this time, with her lover whose arms she did not want to get out of, her belly grew with child. And she knew this child would be full of love, the love that she was so filled with from the loving, longing embrace she had with the Dagda. And so when he was born, they named him Angus Og. He would be the god of love. And she left him be taken away by the Dagda once their beautiful day came to a close. For she knew all good things must come to an end, and at the end of one thing is only a new challenge to be found, a changing in this. And she knew she could not go back to Nuada then. He was too cold and too stern and she was too full of this newfound love to be filled with sadness ever again. And so she followed her footfall and as the music of spring rang around her again, the music of the Dagda still playing and ringing in her ears and her heart still fluttering for the thinking of him, she found herself staring into the well of wisdom, the well that no one should watch. For anyone who filled their mind with so much wisdom of this world and the next would surely lose it in a moment. And in that instant she saw into this world and the next and everything became clear. So clear that suddenly she knew it all. It all made sense. All of the missing pieces. It suddenly all fit together. She was so far away and looking back in and down in this small little existence that she had found herself in. She felt so foolish, forever feeling heartbroken when all there was was love, endless, unbounded, unever-ending, so much flowing from it that the water drew, began to bubble as if boiling and flew through the air to drown Boan. It gathered around her feet, this water now gathering and trying to pull her into a hole. She ran then and around the hills that she knew in the valleys until she heard Mananon MacLear, the king of the sea and the god of the ocean, calling to her. 
and he singing the song of the sea. And so she went that way towards the coast, going around the forests and the trees, winding her way in the glow of every hill until she came to the coast, hearing the water crashing down behind her, running as fast and as fleet-footed as she could go, with water hounding after her. She knew she would drown if she stayed, and so she made her way to the foam-flicked coast, which was full of crashing waves, and she ran there and met the sea, diving face first into the water at the end of the chase where the water of the well met the water of the sea and Boan was in between the two and there some say she drowned that day. Though some say her essence and ever knowing is still flowing from the source of wisdom right through Runeboinia and all the way to the coast, and the river has taken on her name, some say. The River Boyne. This podcast was edited by Ushin Ryan, Rory O'Shea, and the Embers Collective. Stories were by Sam Rixey and Aaron Hegarty. You can find more about Candlelit Tales on our website, candlelittales.ie, and more about the Embers Collective on their website, theemberscollective.com. You can also find them and us on all the usual social media outlets. And make sure you check out the Embers Collective podcast on your favourite podcast player. Liking and subscribing to channels really helps us grow and helps them grow. So please give a like and a share and a follow and a subscribe anywhere you find them and us on social media. If you'd like to chip in a few bob for more direct support, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash candlelittales or make a one-time donation through the PayPal button on our website. We love to hear back from you with questions and requests, so please feel free to contact us directly or leave your questions in the comments below. If anything struck you about this, remember we'll be talking to the Embers Collective later this month. So let us know what struck you and we'll bring it up with the guys. What we really want to do is get these stories out there and share them with as many people as possible. So anything you can do to help us, we really appreciate. And we really appreciate you listening.